Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the Maven story with my friend, Avi Geller. How's it going, Avi? Hi, Joe. It's going well. Thanks for having me here today. I'm very excited to talk to you. So before we get started, Avi, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're located. Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm Avi Geller. I'm the founder and CEO of Maven. We are based in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And what does Maven do? So Maven, we're a technology company serving the trucking industry. We've built a uh, world-class fleet management platform that's fully built on the cloud with mobile experiences for the drivers to help trucking companies run their operations significantly more efficiently, productively, and in a simplified way than ever before possible. So you said you said fleet management, so I'm assuming that means I have to have a fleet more or less, probably not for one truck or two trucks. <laughs> that's right. We do we do have a number of uh, owner operators and small fleets that run our our ELD and kind of basic telematics, but at the, but really our bread and butter is serving what we call enterprise class fleets of maybe 50 trucks up to 5,000 and larger trucking fleets that can benefit from the flexible workflows, the all-in-one driver, very rich driver experience, dispatching, route planning, safety management. The, the full spectrum of functionality you need. All the things we need to worry about. That's right. That is right. <laughs> we'll get more into that in a minute. But before we get into that, I want, I was, when we started, when we were prepping, I called your company Maven Machines and you said, no, we just go by Mavens now. Did you used to go by Maven Machines? Yeah. So in starting the company you know, seven, eight years ago, Maven was the name that really kind of caught my attention as a, as a good name for the business. There are other companies named Maven in different industries. And really, the you know, as a technology company, the URL you get and things like that is uh, is important. So we're known by Maven. Our our domain, our website is mavenmachines.com. Ah, uh, okay, that's where I got yeah. it. So what does Maven mean? Even I don't even know. I mean, uh, I know I've heard the I've heard the word. I'm not exactly sure what it means. Sure, yeah, Maven means expert. So if somebody's uh, a Maven, they're an expert in in whatever topic you're talking about. No one has ever called me that. Ah, uh, Joe. <laughs> You are the maven of logistics. <laughs> I wish. I wish. So before we get into, into time more about maven, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What kind of kid were you? Sure. Yeah. I grew up in uh, California in the Bay Area, Palo Alto. And you know, I played sports growing up. I, uh, interestingly, in California, I played ice hockey, other sports like baseball. But my true passion was software. My, my family's they're all software engineers. Uh, grew up in right in the heart of Silicon Valley through the '80s and '90s. And a very That's why you ended up in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly, yeah. I mean, my, my whole career has been uh, in, in software, enterprise software, and, and ended up opening shop uh, for Maven in Pittsburgh because of Carnegie Mellon University and, and other universities and an incredible concentration of world-class engineering talent. You have to explain. You have to explain that to the, your Silicon Valley brethren uh, that yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of smart people just east of here too. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be shocked. <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> so you, you grew up playing hockey. You grew up being software, and you said mom and dad were both in software business. That's right. That's right. So you grew up with you grew up in a kind of a, a heady time out there. It was interesting. And I was, I was young, you know, going through grade school and high school, but it was still very aware of, you know, down the road in Palo Alto and Stanford University and the whole valley. Steve Jobs was, you know, walking around literally in the neighborhood and all the things that were going on was, was remarkable. And, and I knew that that's, that's what I wanted to be involved in when I grew up was building state of the art technology to, to help an industry really, really take the next steps and operate better than it ever did before. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah, it's funny. I, I grew up in Michigan, and I, I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan. What was crazy is that back when I was a kid, but well before when you were a kid, the biggest companies in the world were automotive companies, General Motors, Ford, which is crazy now because you look at the market capitalists. They're still massive enterprises. I mean, and they're the ones who buy the software. But yeah. it, what's crazy is I never really realized how big these companies were. And you would bump into, you know, 
Ford Ford people and you go the family members and you go yeah it's no big deal there's <laughs> people right and yeah. you think it's it's, it's a and you you bumping into Steve Jobs or or seeing those kind of people in the area that's a, something you'll tell your grandkids so where did you go to college and tell us a little bit about your career after college yeah so you know as I mentioned I grew up through high school I was already writing code and really into software and I was fortunate enough to get into MIT and wow went back east to study their computer science. Was that a was that a culture shock moving from the East Coast to the West Coast? Well, the other from the West Coast to the East Coast. I'm sorry, West Coast yeah. to the East Coast. But yeah, it, it certainly was. It was one I was looking for. I definitely wanted to kind of get out and see the world. And as I mentioned, I played hockey, so I got to play hockey there uh, as a, kind of a club team. But live in a place that it snows, uh, that was a whole new experience. I got to think club hockey in Boston is pretty good hockey. It was good. I enjoyed it. And just the whole East Coast experience and, and just being at a at a world-class university. It was, it was a great four years. So we had to play. I'm from Michigan. We had to play hockey when I was a kid. It was the law. We played. We weren't playing hockey. We were playing street hockey. And we played it, we played it seemingly, seemingly constantly. And it's funny. As soon as you go a little bit like from Michigan to Ohio, Ohio's not into it very much. And then you go to Kentucky, not at all. I mean, it doesn't fit 100 miles south and no one cares. It's, yeah, hockey's like in the that. Northeast. It matters. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun to be in a place where they're so the, the the San Jose Sharks were pretty new when I grew up. But you go out to Boston and the Bruins. The Bruins are a religion. religion. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, I love I love those old teams. I would date myself too much if I started saying the people who I love there. <laughs> I think yeah. you know who I'm talking about. So, so you studied engineering there. Computer science? Yeah, computer science, electrical engineering. And so what was your first, did you go right to work or did you go for a master's? Yeah, I went to work. I joined a startup company out of MIT that was doing some big data work in the medical space and DNA research. It was right at the bubble burst, right at about 2001. So that was my first uh, startup experience as an entry level person where great technology, great initial customers, and everything crashed. So after about <laughs> a year and a half, that was a real high-opening experience. And You still lose your job even if, even if you're entry-level, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the, the company just kind of didn't, didn't make it. So where'd you go from there? So I actually, my family is uh, originally from Israel. So I moved to Israel to have a, kind of a worldly experience. Uh, ended up staying for a number of years. I worked for SAP. Based, they're based in Germany, but they had a large... Uh, or, while I was there, they established a large office in Israel. So where were you in Israel? Near Tel Aviv. I just had somebody on my podcast from Tel Aviv, and this keeps coming up. I worked for a Silicon Valley company back in 10, 15 years ago. And I remember they moved our engineering staff to Tel Aviv, and we were all like, what? And then the they explained to us. I remember getting a number of presentations about the, our Tel Aviv, new, new our engineering team all of a sudden being there. I had no idea and how big how big Tel Aviv is in tech and I think this is up, this is always of course up for debate we have Silicon Valley then you go well what's second is it Austin is it Boston there's a lot of people would say the second city is Tel Aviv am I right you are 100% right and without a doubt on the Nasdaq the country with the second most companies on Nasdaq in the world is Israel when you walk around Tel Aviv, it feels like everybody has their own startup company. It's an it's an incredible scene for entrepreneurship, specifically in technology. Yeah, I use Fiverr. I think a lot of people use yeah. Fiverr. Fiverr is yeah. from there. And I remember at that time, and this goes back, again, it's at least 10 years ago, the company I worked for, when they gave us a presentation, they said, per capita engineers anywhere in the world, number one is U.S., number two is Israel. Per capita VC investment at that time, it's changed since then. There was more there was more VC investment in Israel than Europe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And now Europe is caught up, but it's still, you think about this tiny little place that punches well above its weight. Yeah, it's a country the size of New Jersey, the state of New Jersey, and with about, you know, six, seven million people. And <laughs> it's crazy. incredible the technologies, the companies that have come out of, out of Israel. So it was fun to be there. Yeah. So how long were you in Israel for? I ended up staying for nearly nine years. And along the way, I got an MBA and, and worked at a few different startup companies. Would you get your MBA over there or here? So it was actually a joint program with Kellogg and Tel Aviv University. Which is Northwestern, right? Yeah, Northwestern University and Tel Aviv University. 
we got, it was an international executive program and we got to go to a number of places around the world and Very cool. study with international executives. So it was great. So then you moved back here. What'd you move back to do here? So I moved, I was working for an, uh, an Israeli startup company based in Jerusalem and I moved back to Boston and we were serving customers all over the world and also was kind of beginning to work on what would become Maven. And I, I certainly wanted to establish Maven in the U.S. as uh, serving serving some sort of industrial markets with technology. So was did you start Maven then, or did you uh, go to work? Where'd you go to work? Yeah, so about a year after coming back, everything was ready, and, and I I selected Pittsburgh as the city to really get the company off the ground and, and set up headquarters. So uh, moved to Pittsburgh. That was about seven years ago, and you know set up shop, starting to to build what became the company. So you said earlier why you chose Pittsburgh, but hit those points again, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I was living in Boston. I was looking at, you know, ideal locations to set up a new technology startup serving the trucking industry. And I was looking at Boston and San Francisco and Austin and Minneapolis and Boulder. But Pittsburgh with, you know, when I was at MIT, the one school we always kept an eye on was Carnegie Mellon University artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, automation. And I learned more and more about Pittsburgh and its history and its culture. And I realized this is an untapped gem. It's, uh, it's the ideal place to set up a high-tech business serving logistics and transportation. And since then, in the years, you know, the, the autonomous vehicle movement has a major, you know, hub here in Pittsburgh and more and more Technology companies are here and more and more financing and investment opportunities are here. So, yeah, it's worked out well. This is that rise of the rest, right? Yes, yes, yes. So I think I forgot the I'm going to botch this again, but I talked to Craig Fuller from Freight Waves about this. And he mentioned, I think it's Steve Case from AOL. Yeah. I think he wrote a book and I forgot what the book is called, but it might be called Rise of the Rest. Yes, Rise of the Rest. That's right. And then he has a fund that is. Yes. Where he funds companies outside of Silicon Valley with the idea that. There is so much reason for you to be outside of Silicon Valley for different kind of startups. And for trucking, you know, we all call uh, Chattanooga the Silicon Valley of trucking. But not to say Pittsburgh can't make that claim uh, at some point. Right. You guys keep growing. But it's interesting because we were talking about when we were prepping. You don't have to be in Silicon Valley to find great talent. And I think, you know, we we all kind of fell in love with the story of the Silicon Valley startup. You know, you go out there and you know, you uh, bootstrap the best you can. I guess bootstrapping out there is a uh, million dollars for your, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I it's mean, a little different. Yeah. I mean, out there, nobody bootstraps. They they start with a venture capital investment of tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> That's for, uh, what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So you, you chose Pittsburgh, which must be weird when you go back home to uh, the Bay area and they go, wait, you've got a technology company east of here. Are you crazy? How'd that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and less and less so over the years. When I first, you know, I have some investors that are based in the Bay Area and I have a lot of friends and family out there. And in the beginning, it was Pittsburgh. Where is that? Uh, and right. now it's, oh, yeah, Pittsburgh. I've been here. I mean, that is, that's a great place to be building. A it is a great here. place. Yeah. So it is interesting because I, 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 when we're prepping, I talked about this. I live close to Ann Arbor and there's Silicon Valley people who left Michigan. I went to Silicon Valley, started companies, some are some were investors and whatnot. They moved back to Ann Arbor and they're like, because I can live a higher quality of life and the talent is here. You know, I worked for a Silicon Valley company and I think there was 12 of us. I was based in Michigan, but the eight guys who were based out, out West, four of them were from Michigan. So they were like, yeah. and they were like, we're living, we're living like animals out here. And Joe and uh, the other guys living in Michigan have nice lives so why can't we all just move there yeah, and true. it wasn't really considered well we did consider it the company ultimately closed but it was interesting because there was a lot of complaining they're like it's expensive to live in the bay area and we're all getting paid the same except money goes a lot further in michigan than, than yeah, san francisco or mountain view <laughs> there's so many benefits to living in a city like pittsburgh or ann arbor um, the quality of life it's a great place to raise a family Pittsburgh has all the amenities of a major city, but it's so much more manageable. We have a lot yeah. of employees that call them boomerangs. You know, they grew up in the area, went out to the Silicon Valley, right. worked for SpaceX, worked for Twitter, worked for Facebook, and then they come back. And uh, 
So we have a, we have a lot of Silicon Valley culture in Maven, but we have all the benefits of, of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Well, again, I think that's I think that we can all learn from what Silicon Valley's done. That doesn't mean we can't do it in our own neighborhoods. So, so you started Maven, and what? So, what hole did you see in the market? What? what so you weren't from trucking. What? 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 Uh, what made you choose trucking? What? What uh, opportunity did you see? Yeah. So you're right. I'm not. I wasn't from trucking, and I was looking for an opportunity, an industry that can benefit from a brand new next generation platform for their what we're calling field operations. So industries where they have assets that are remote, that are mobile, um, that really affect the operations of the business, leveraging at the time was a lot of enabling technologies that were new, like powerful handheld mobile devices. Oh, yeah. You can do what you do with a flip phone, right? <laughs> or no, with the that's right. old school you know, PC. You needed, you needed them to have a, a, a tablet or a, a mobile phone, right? That's right. And that was the idea is, you know, with, with these tablets and mobile phones and the cellular network really getting developed to be omnipresent and cloud computing and the sensors and artificial intelligence libraries. The idea was to bring this all together to a very well designed platform for a, uh, you know, ultimately for a trucking operation. So you saw you saw trucking overall as a, a big opportunity. So when you started talking to people, who'd you talk to? How'd you figure out what you wanted to do in the space? Yeah, so I was I began being introduced to executives in the trucking industry, and we did a lot. You know, as I was kind of building the team, we talked to CEOs of trucking companies, we talked to safety managers, driver managers, a lot of drivers, really hundreds of people, and the response was please, please build out this platform. The technologies we're working with today were, were great a generation ago. They're not serving our needs. And there's definitely right. a need for a more advanced, modern solution going forward. Avi, I say this all the time on my podcast. I think when you're, when you're a consumer and you have, and I know Facebook and all these are probably not go back that far, but when you're on Facebook and when you're on LinkedIn and you have cool mobile apps like DoorDash or or Lyft or whatever, and then you go to work and it's it's old, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's clunky. Yeah. You go, damn, we're spending a lot of money. Why can't we have that? You and want that, that so yeah. consumer tech drives the the expectations. You nailed it, and, and Joe, like that's that's where we we focused the majority of our product design on the driver experience to make it that quality that you get from a an iPhone or a, a DoorDash or a, a Facebook application where it's right. intuitive, it's it's designed for to be used well, not just clunky technology. Right. And that, that's been really appreciated by, uh, by our customers, specifically the drivers and their managers. So what was the first, what was the first kind of application that you guys put together? Yeah. So we, I mean, really our, our first big go-to-market was in the LTL space with our dispatching and pickup and delivery solution um, in the LTL space. So our, our one of our first large customers is a, is a fleet, Central Freight Lines in Texas. And there's a big one. Yeah, they're a big one. And, you know, they have about 15, 1700 total drivers, you know, across the entire country. And all of the dispatching, all of the, the driver experience as they're doing their pickups and deliveries throughout the day is all was all done in our, still is today, of course, uh, on our platform. And, that real-time nature and all the sophistication around the completion codes for picking up freight, the, the tags for the characteristics of the shipment, the optimization of the routing, the, the document capture of bills of lading and delivery receipts in real time, you know, that that really changes the operational efficiency metrics of a business. Right. And, and you know, I managed a little third-party logistics company and we did mostly less than truckload. And I so vividly remember some of the uh, challenges with connectivity when those drivers were on the road. <laughs> and the thing that used to drive me crazy is when uh, something would have to deliver by 4 p.m. on Monday to keep a production facility open. And then you get a call Tuesday afternoon and they're irate. They're like, that thing didn't deliver. I was like, well, I would have heard if it didn't deliver. So <laughs> let me let me look into it. Then my guys would you know, go, no, it delivered. Then they they call the carrier and they get the uh, proof of delivery and email it. But by the time you do it, you're like, God, really? <laughs> Did it really take, 
you know, somebody calling and screaming at me and me going over and telling my guys it's not here. And then, and then they have to call the carrier and then the carrier says, Oh yeah. When that driver gets back, he'll, uh, we'll fax that over to you. (laughs) Thank you. What a a wonderful system. Well, and not everybody was faxing, but there was enough of that where you just go, this shouldn't take this long. (laughs) And that's, that's one of the problems we saw. And now there's absolute real time data visibility from it starts with the driver, but we are the technology where the, where the rubber meets the road from the driver to the carrier to, if there's a broker, a shipper, receiver, everybody has access to the data in real time. There's no question about where is the freight, what time will it arrive, or what time did it arrive. Right. So you get that proof of delivery. It's all electronic and boom, right up to, uh, to connect to the TMS and transfer to the ERP and anywhere else it needs to go, right? That's exactly right. So you guys, I'm, <clears throat> I'm assuming you benefited when the ELD mandate came along? Yes. So our, our platform is, is very broad and covers, you know, everything that you would need to run a trucking business. We integrate to the TMS, but all the operations. So the ELD mandate certainly benefited us. Um, it, it caused a lot of fleets to, to make decisions to improve their technology, leverage that requirement and, and make some other improvements. But there's, there's continuing demand uh, and growing demand now as well. We just signed up with CRST, one of the leading truckload companies in the country, to leverage this, the same technology with that really optimized. those guys. Yeah, you know, yeah. Good guys. They're great. They've been great. It's, it's a great fleet, very well run. And leveraging that unified, flexible driver experience really benefits a company as large and as broad as, as a CRST. So you mentioned you mentioned cloud based. So talk about why cloud based is. You know, I, I, every once in a while I ask. Uh, it came up not too long ago. On premise versus cloud. Talk a little bit about that. And that's a technology that if it wasn't there, you couldn't do what you do the way you do it, right? Exactly. And you know, if you think of the experiences you get when you use a Gmail or a Facebook on your uh, your laptop or your computer, and everything is just so seamless. You don't have to install anything to to use uh, Gmail. Right. And that's what we've built with the same technology. So that's where the, that's where basically the processing is in the cloud. Everything's in the cloud, the data, the processing. We have a lot of edge technology in the driver's hand on the mobile device. What does that the mean? Truck. So the edge means because the cellular network isn't 100% connected right. at all times. So we have a lot of data storage and synchronization. If a driver goes in and out of cell coverage, they two things happen. They don't even notice. They're still doing their ELD. They still see their loads. They still do their automatic arrival departures. They still input data, take document pictures. And as soon as you regain connectivity transparently, yeah. everything goes up. <laughs> right. That's called, that, the, the term is edge computing because you're on the edge of the cloud. Well, that makes sense for our, our business because you're sometimes, you're not in downtown Chicago. You might have been in Chicago in the morning, but before you know it, you're out in the middle of a cornfield and there is weak internet or no internet. And so they don't lose all of the ability to use your applications. It's just not necessarily processing until they hit that that strong signal again. <laughs> exactly. So it's completely transparent to the, the driver. It's a major focus of what we do. Drivers need to drive the vehicles. They get, they make money themselves while the wheels are turning and the, the, the carrier's making money when the wheels are turning. Everybody's making money. So you want the technology to keep them moving. You don't want them playing around unnecessarily with the technology. Right. So if they're using Maven, they've got that, that, that whole suite. So tell me, just the, give me some of the stuff that's in your suite on Maven. Oh, sure. So there is ELD, you know, hours of service. There's DVIR, driver vehicle inspection reports, which is pre-trip and post-trip inspections. So that's all, that, is that just a checklist on their phone? It's a, it's a checklist. You take pictures of things. Is it on a phone or a tablet or both? Yeah, so the driver's uh, user interface is either a phone or a tablet or any mobile device. Everything synchronizes to the cloud. So the fleet administration has access to the complete history, you know, maintenance history of the vehicles, the trailers, all the safety information of drivers, all the operational metrics of loads, you know, geofence arrivals, geofence departures, trip times, fuel usage, idle reports, the list goes on and on. Visibility, I'm sure I know that's uh, and navigation. I'm sure that's part of it too these days. Yeah. Turn by turn navigation, real time messaging. I think I mentioned document capture where you're, you're getting all the, uh, all the critical documents in real time with a high quality 
uh, scan from the mobile device, things like that. So, and, and then Maven connects with their transportation management system or their ERP or any other system they have? Yeah, we've, we've integrated to dozens of systems, you know, I think virtually every TMS, every third-party systems, time clock systems, accounting systems, you know, uh, all kinds of systems in, in a very robust bi-directional integration. So the data flows and appears where it needs to in real time. Very nice. Very nice. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about your growth of your company. So you started seven years ago. I know you had a boost here when ELD, ELD happened. By the way, I would hear a lot of people say we lost capacity when we got ELD for people say 4%, 5%, 7%. I don't know what the real number is. But one of the things we've also gained is so much data, I would say. But I think also what we've gained is the recognition that the driver is so key in this process. And we kind of took them for granted, it seems, for a generation or two. <laughs> so, oh. so talk about talk about that that ELD HOS mandate. Well, first of all, tell, if you don't mind, tell people who don't know what it is, please say what that is. Sure. Yeah. So the mandate has to do with ultimately fatigue. It's you know a federal mandate from the Department of Transportation, the FMCSA, to limit the number of hours a driver can drive in a day and effectively a week to ensure they have enough time to rest and they don't get overly fatigued. It sounds very simple. It's actually quite complex. The actual clocks and timers and it's complex for the driver. What counts as what counts as being on the clock and what counts as not being on the clock. Exactly. And we've, we always had hours of service that they managed by on paper books, right, for a lot of people. And then we had the electronic log. Uh, what is it? ELD is an electronic. Electronic logging device. Right. I forgot. Yeah. God, I never yeah. thought I'd forget that name. We heard so much for a while. So the ELD, some companies used it prior to, but I think it became a mandate two or three years, four years ago. Yeah. So as you said, you know, it was initially it was paper log books for a very long time. And obviously that allowed, you know, if it's on paper, it's pretty easy to, to fudge the numbers a little bit. Right. So the government said it has to be electronically tracked. So now we have the, the device tracks the vehicle's engine hours and odometer. So you're basically, you know, how much, how many miles and how many hours that vehicle is being driven. And then you're assigning that to the drivers and it's all done electronically and, and tracked and you can do edits. You know, in many ways, it's actually improved the driver's lives. It does mean that you can't just go for 48 hours straight and try to make a whole right. lot of money and drive 5,000 miles. And Right. You can't just drink 10 cups of coffee and right. keep driving all night. But it keeps you safe and, and it keeps everyone kind of, uh, I guess, honest, you could say, about uh, about going about their business. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I know we have to do a better job on that. I've had people on time out the ELD mandate and talking about, does it really does it really accomplish what it's supposed to? And I don't know that it did, but I know there were, <laughs> I know that there's been other, other things that we've recognized, like how much time drivers are wasting loading and unloading and waiting yeah. unnecessarily. So, and that touches on a huge topic that nowadays is driver retention. And that's really been a major focus where, where we've benefited fleets and, and we put a lot of focus on, we need more drivers in the industry. And if we want more drivers, they have to have a high quality of work life as a truck driver, it's a tough job already. You're driving an 80,000 pound rig down a public road. They don't need to be playing around with a complex, hard to understand technology solution. And what we've seen is as we've provided a very well-designed, single unified experience that gives them what they need to know so they can get to the, to the shipper, find the trailer, hook it, load it, get to a receiver, drop it, unload it, get paid, go about their business, get the best loads that they can get. It, it really has a positive impact on, impact on drivers entering the industry and staying in the industry right. and staying with specific fleets as well. Right. Well, I know the ELD mandate kind of put, put the uh, technology in everybody's hands and that made visibility a lot easier. So if, if you have to already have your ELD, you know, in your, in your phone or I guess uh, on your, in the car and, or in the truck, it also, and the visibility became like, bam, we can have all these cool things that we want. So what, whether it's good or not, we didn't have a choice. It's a government mandate, but the, the things that we've built from it have been really useful. So, so you grew a lot during that time. So you've been around seven years. You've, got, you've grown really rapidly. So talk a little bit about that. What have you learned? What was some of the trials and tribulations along the way? Yeah, I mean, 
a lot of lessons along the way. It's been quite a ride. It's been it's been very enjoyable. I love what I do. I love the people I work with and the industry that we serve. But you know, started out with one person and then a few people, a few employees, and uh, significantly larger now. And, and we're you know, what one of the big lessons is what we sell is absolutely mission critical. It is how our customers make their livings. Right. And we've learned that lesson over the years and built a 99.99% uptime system. We are virtually never down. We take that very seriously. We take customer support very seriously. There's really no difference if a driver has a support question Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock or Sunday at two in the morning. It's the exact same level of uh, criticality. I mean, these are lessons we've learned on as we've built out our, our platform and, and, and brought on our customer base. So what did you learn along the way about your business? I know you serve everyone else's business. I know you got to serve yours too. <laughs> That's, yeah, our business, our culture, we put a lot of focus on <clears throat> the culture we have internally at Maven. We're here to have a substantial impact on a major industry. So to do so, we need world-class people that are operating at their best and they have the freedom to do so. So our culture is very transparent. We have virtually no policies or procedures internally for things like vacation time and sick leave and asking for you know, permission to make expenses. And it, it's the, the, the culture and what we've learned over the years. We operate best when we put full trust in our employees and, and everyone's operating in the best interests of the company and the industry that we serve. It's very interesting you talk about that. I have two daughters who are in the workforce and uh, doing very well. And whenever my, my one daughter works at one high-flying startup out, out west, and every time she talks to my mom, she says, well, I'm just going to take the day off. My, my mom says, so tell me again, you have unlimited vacation time. How did, my mom's like 87. She's like, I don't understand how that works. <laughs> like, like, trust me, mom, she's working hard. Don't worry about it. That's right. Yeah. So talk about some of the, the challenges you've had, failures you've had along the way and how you kind of reacted. I'm just curious how you personally have uh, endured those and learned from those mistakes. Yeah. I mean, on, on the one hand, there's, there's been countless challenges and failures along the way. On the other hand, we've been fortunate enough to be very successful and have kind of a uh, consistent uh, growth, you know, in really meeting. Well, a lot yeah, of you, you've grown like a weed. You got a lot of employees over there. <laughs> But there's lots of challenges and in, in, in on how we hire and how every time we bring on a new significant customer, how we how we deploy, did it go well? There's times where, you know, in the past and some of the early deployments, well, we didn't not every driver fully guided or or, you know, not everything was was taken care of. And and we always do a retrospective on, on good or bad. Things go really well. We still want to learn why it went well and, and strengthen that things didn't go perfectly. We learn why. So it's just kind of so the the idea is just kind of like this continuous improvement, learn from every every new because we mentioned implementation or deployment. Yeah, you 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 do all the planning you can, and then realize, oh, we didn't dot the i here, cross the t here. Make sure we do next time. Exactly, and and you know at this point, hundreds of fleets later, we have you know a very robust system, but still today, as we deploy uh, a location, you know, fifty trucks and drivers, a hundred trucks and drivers. Were there any hiccups? If so, we really need to get to the bottom. It's like the old ask why seven times to get to the right. You know, and that that's just critical for continually improving and learning. So uh, are all your employees there in Pittsburgh? Our main office or our only office is in Pittsburgh, but we have employees, especially with COVID and all the remote working employees all over the country and all over the world. Employees took the event, the, the, took advantage of the opportunity. We have some in Hawaii, some in San Diego some overseas. I take it it's working. It's working well, but a majority are in Pittsburgh. We have a great office. People enjoy coming into the office, but it's, it's really a, you do what you need to do to be successful both at work and in life. So you mentioned trying to build that culture. I always joke that uh, you get a culture whether you do something about it or not. How do you make sure that the company culture is growing the way you want it to grow as opposed to, I was looking at it, maybe it's like a garden that <laughs> needs weeding, but how did you... Uh, How'd you build the culture that you have now? That's a great question. So we, one is just putting a lot of focus on it as a team, as a, you know, uh, the management team and the entire company. We constantly, you know, uh, we'll, we'll be asking ourselves, we do a lot of surveys, a lot of kind of group sessions. You know, how do we celebrate our success as well enough? Do we learn from our 
you know, failures well enough? Are, is everyone satisfied in their job? Do we have career path development that's appropriate? We're constantly asking these questions of ourselves. Um, are we as efficient as, as we can be, you know, all of that. And, and, you know, through these ways, we, we kind of develop the, the culture that we need to be successful. Yeah, it's, it's interesting during COVID, a horrible, horrible pandemic, of course. But it's interesting because all of a sudden remote work became doable, uh, whether we wanted it to or not. It just became something that we had to get used to. And I think for technology companies, you were already probably pretty used to the idea of using technology to to manage teams and work. Everyone else who wasn't that way had to grow up. <laughs> and suddenly, as you said, we can have people all over the world uh, and work work on our team still. I think that's that that technology is fascinating. But I think th- the big challenge is how do we keep the culture? How do we keep people connected? You know, career paths and team dynamics working the way we want them to. That's a great topic. And we were fortunate being a technology company. We were already working in that way. It was expanded upon through COVID, but we already had a very kind of free way of work about us. And we had a number of employees that were already deciding to work from home or work from remote locations before COVID. And we always supported that. So we had all the all the tools in place and the culture in place for meetings with cameras and other right. collaboration tools. Already you didn't have to explain Zoom to anybody at your company. No. Yeah, we already had all that. So, <laughs> it, it, you know, we used it more than ever, of course, but it wasn't a, uh, like you said, we didn't have to explain what Zoom is or how to do a video meeting. You're, you're lucky because I always think there's there's companies with older people who are may, maybe not into the technology as much. And man, when they had to struggle through and say, yeah, yeah, grandpa, you just go over here and hit the button and, and, and they're going to see your face. <laughs> it's great. So, I mean, now I, I uh, Zoom or FaceTime with my 93-year-old grandmother. And, you know, so it's, oh, yeah. It's my fun. mom's 87. She's always on FaceTime with my kids and it's on Zoom calls. Yeah. Why not? So let's talk about you for a second. How do you set goals for your company? I mean, and then how do you set goals for yourself? Oh, that's a great topic. So, I mean, that's changed as we've grown as a business. You know, the initial goals were, hey, let's get our, let's build our first generation of our product and our first early adopting customers. And let's really take care of them and understand the needs of the market in greater detail and work with the team to achieve those goals. And, and now we're really in a scale up mode. So it's, you know, how do we serve the broader market? How do we take care of our current customers? How do we, how do we build our brand, you know, kind of business development goals. And, and I have just a phenomenal group around me. And my main goal is to, is to make them as successful as possible. That's, that's what I do day in and day out. So when you, do you have formal meetings every quarter, every year? How do you, how's the goal, how are the goals set? Yeah, we started doing kind of a leadership meeting every week uh, for a couple hours. We get together. And now we started doing every quarter uh, kind of offsite, multi-day uh, sessions or retreats uh, where we can just really focus on the medium and long-term goals on our culture, on our business goals and product, on the whole business. And we get the all the employees together as frequently as we can. All the remote people fly in at least once a quarter to try to build personal bonds. This is COVID permitting and you know we're, right. things like that. It's so once a quarter is the kind of that objectives and key results uh, mindset, or is it traditional goal setting? Or yeah, there's there's a little bit of both depending on the different roles and functions. Some are more strategic goals, and some are you know measurable kind of smart type goals where you can uh, you can define them and, and measure the success of, of achieving those goals in the next quarter. Some of them will take you know play out over two quarters, some a full year, and we we run the whole gambit there. So what about you personally? How do you manage your time? Are you a, a journal guy or you do it on, online or three by five cards? <laughs> yeah, I, I do pretty much everything online. I do have things I write down on paper are more uh, temporal in nature, like you know notes that you, that you don't need to keep and journaling and things like that. I do enjoy doing, but I do that online. I like keeping notes for meetings uh, and I use various tools to, to store them because I find that you refer to them more often than you thought. My feeling has always been if it's important, it becomes digital at some point. So if I take notes and they're really important, I write an email about it or. <laughs> also, I can't read my own handwriting. So, uh, and I type faster than I write. So it's just more efficient to just do it online. So every morning, do you have a list of things you're going to get done or do you put them on your calendar or is it a, a to-do list? What do you use? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So I do use a to-do list and there's things for the day, things for the week. 
And then on the calendar is really is that meetings. online. Yeah, it's online. What what tool? Um, I've tried different ones for the kind of short term to do list. I started using the Microsoft to do. We use the Office three sixty five. Yep. Suite, so that Microsoft to do, they've done a nice job there. I think for longer term things, I use the OneNote. I've been using more and more the Microsoft uh, system for these things. Very nice. I have to switch gears on that stuff all the time. I'll. I'll for a long time be putting it in journals and then, then I'll switch to three by five cards and I'll do it online for a little bit. And then, <laughs> and, and it's funny because uh, every once in a while I'll find like these old lists. I was like, look how stupid I was doing it this way. And then a month later, I'll be back to doing it that okay, way. The same way. There's no, there's no one right answer. Yeah. There is no good way is what I'm always convinced yeah. of. <laughs> there's nothing. It, it always reminds me of this whole idea of you can list 20 things that you want to get done today. But if you don't narrow it down to five, you're doomed. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. You know, there's this expression I enjoy, which is people always overestimate what they can accomplish in a day, but they always underestimate what they can accomplish in a year. Right. I actually just saw that quote yesterday and it's, oh, really? I, it was just, it was different. It was, they underestimate what they can, or they overestimate what they can get done in a year and underestimate what they can do in 10. But it's the same idea. Same idea. Yeah. And you just have to like, you can't get everything done today. You're overestimating it in the short term. But if you, you know, if you take step after step after step at the end, you will end up on the top of Mount Everest. But you, you know, you just have to keep taking the steps forward, have your goals ahead of you, you know, where you want to end up and just move in the right direction, move in the right direction. So you mentioned you played hockey and uh, it must've been pretty good if you played over at a club hockey at, in, in Boston. So are you uh st- still into sports are you still uh competitive yeah i mean i still play uh hockey uh as an uh, as an adult league as an, in a beer league you would say and uh but really there is I, no I, there is no beer league for hockey there i always say that you can never be in a beer league for softball but hockey it seems like you get guys 45 years old fighting <laughs> yeah you do have to that'll happen but for them that's fun but no there's certainly certainly a good time playing adult hockey and but really, I have a, I have a six year old boy, and, and he's into hockey, and oh, that's I, great. I, I enjoy just watching him kind of learn the you know, hockey and soccer, and he's in first grade. And just watching him kind of grow up is really uh, what I enjoy. I've talked to a lot of founders, and a lot of them described being really into sports as kids, and then a lot of them talked about being a lot of jobs as kids. Did you have jobs when you were a kid? Yeah, I started working when I was 15 and uh, I, I loved it. I mean, I loved what you do. My first job was in a, this is before like Kinko's and stuff was in a copy, like a yep. local neighborhood copy yeah, shop. FedEx, FedEx bought Kinko's at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. And right a few years after that. And uh, so I worked at a copy shop and people would come in and place orders for, you know, materials to be these massive copy machines. And, and I really enjoyed that. And I worked in various stores, things like that really kind of getting out in the workforce and making, making your own money. Bought my, when I turned 16, I had enough to buy a thousand dollar car so I could drive around town. I really enjoyed that. Well, it's nice that your parents who probably had enough money, it sounds like if they were software people, they could have bought your own, they could have spoiled you with stuff, but it sounds like they didn't. They made you go to work and they made you buy your own car, which is nice. Yeah. My, uh, my parents did not grow up very wealthy and, and, and I was raised with a really good culture of hard work and, and you earn what you have. Um, independence. And you know, my, my grandfather ran a, a small convenience store in the Bay Area that he built with his two hands and ran for his whole life. And uh, so I, was, I, was, I really appreciate the, the way I was raised. I, th- I think the challenge is, is, is this country and as people become wealthier and wealthier, is how do you help your kids learn to grind? One of the things I've talked about on this podcast, I've talked to a lot of founders, people like yourself who are successful and they played sports and they had jobs and they they gained mastery along the way as young people. If you give your kids everything, they don't have to ever have those, which, which at the time you might go crappy jobs. I love the fact that I had a whole bunch of jobs that were very difficult as a kid. I think it's critical. And as you talk, you know, sports is a great lesson for where you learn about success and failure and teamwork and put in the work to get the results. Working is similar. And I very much believe if you didn't earn it and something it's given to you, you don't really appreciate it. You don't take care of whatever it is. And, and it, it's just not a it's not a good way to be uh, to be raised and live your life. Right. I remember as a kid getting having my own money just meant so much more to me than 
having my mom and dad's money, just being able to get that big paycheck, never as big as you want, but yeah, <laughs> you yeah. get that big paycheck, cash it, walk around and go, yeah, there we go. I'm in, I'm rich. I got yeah. 30 bucks in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's also when you learn about taxes and it's like, wait a second, I should have a little more here. Right. <laughs> oh my God. My one of my first jobs, I didn't realize I was part of a union, a food service union at the racetrack. Uh, and I remember they took between taxes and the union, they took my whole first paycheck. And I was like, yeah. wow, I'm not so sure I'm a union guy. <laughs> and I remember asking, I was like, you know, do I have to be part of that union? They're like, yes, yes you do. You do. <laughs> Who am I? Am I working for myself or for them? But, you know, it's the way the world works. I was like, do I get a hat or a t-shirt? Because it feels like <laughs> I kind of went on a, spent a lot of money this week. So let's talk a little bit about your mindset. You know, do you consider yourself lucky or good or both? I mean, explain your relationship with that process. Oh, first and foremost, I feel extremely blessed and fortunate for many reasons, you know, to be to be living in this time in this wonderful country, to, you know, to be healthy, to have my family, to be building this business. It's all just unbelievable. I feel very fortunate for that. You know, I have certain skills that, uh, you know, I was born with and have developed over the years that allow me to do what I do. But more than anything, it's just appreciation and gratitude. Yeah. I think, I, you know, I asked this question of people and I've, I've had some thoughts on it my, on myself is I feel lucky that I was born here. To be born in a country where you can succeed is helpful. I was lucky to be born to parents who, and they didn't give me everything, they t but they gave me work ethic and they, they showed by example, this is what you do. I had so many opportunities that way. I had the opportunity to work hard. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were not putting it in, in a position, no, I shouldn't say a lot of people, we need to do a better job of giving everybody that opportunity to succeed and really the opportunity to work like hell. <laughs> so, and that's, <laughs> that's the magic of America is that, uh, you know, everybody has the opportunity. If you want to, to work hard and you can and you do it, you have a really good chance of being successful more than it's not perfect, but more right. than any other place on the planet. It's, it's really uh, remarkable. All right, man. Well, let's wrap this bad boy up before I forget. So what's next for the the industry what do you what, what are some, some things you see coming here now, when i say the industry i mean trucking and the technology kind of the intersection where you live yeah i mean there's i mean i really believe we're at the beginning of the techno you know, technology revolution for trucking and transportation and logistics the things that we're doing to 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 get data from drivers from trucks from the whole network and enable the increasing efficiency of how transportation works, there is so much opportunity to improve that. Uh, so how, you know, the driver experience is, and increasingly as the vehicles get more sophisticated and automated, there's always going to be a driver in my opinion, but how a drivers work with more sophisticated vehicles will, will improve efficiencies quite a bit. And also there's, there's a trend where an increasing percentage of freight is is delivered by brokers and what that means where you have large carriers with access to uh, to great freight and small carriers that you know, drivers enjoy driving with and and how we can optimize the experience for those drivers and how freight can can uh, can either be serviced by large carriers or in a partnership you know through a, a brokerage type uh, arrangement with smaller carriers and, and optimizing that entire operation there's going to be a lot of work done in that space. Yeah, it's interesting. I think about 25, 30% of trucking goes through a broker. And it's going to be interesting. We have these digital freight brokerage models. And I think you're going to see some, they're, they're going to have a lot of success. I have no doubt about that. That's right. And we'll also see brokers, I joke about this, they're they're like, uh, I say this in a, a positive sense, they're like cockroaches. You can't kill them. So the, that's a very tenacious group. They've been through hell. So they will adapt and they will adjust. Yeah. They aren't going anywhere. They're, they're going to morph. <laughs> yeah. And that 25% number in, I think, the year 2000 was 6%. So right. it's, it's increasing. And you're right. They are tenacious and they're good at what they do. And they, they provide value to the industry. And I think there's going to be a lot of technology that will enable that to improve. I look at it very similar to the way stockbrokers existed. They were very transactional at one point. You know, what kind of stock would you like to buy? They made money on the transaction. It wasn't a strategic thing. Now, if you have money in the market, you might have somebody who says, I get 1% and my pay is aligned with your wealth. Yes. So yes. I think we'll see more alignment. I agree with that. So. 
that's what's new for the industry. What's new for Maven? What do you see happening here in the next 18 months? Yeah, I mean, we're, uh, we're bringing on some great world-class fleets and building out our, 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 our platform. We're continuing to serve the drivers better and better, the, the driver managers, dispatchers, route planners. Really, as we come up from the telematics up into our integration into the TMSs, we're on a mission to really help move freight more efficiently, help drivers be more successful, and we have a lot of work there. That's what we're going to keep focusing. So, so you'll always be adding new applications as as the as the requirement is or as the opportunity arises. Yes, exactly, and covering more of the, what we call the life cycle of the freight, and providing value to shippers and receivers and brokers, either directly or indirectly, through the incredible uh, real time data that we provide. Very nice. So, what's next for you? For me personally, I mean, I love what I do. It's let's just keep getting better at it. Let's let's really. We want to have a major impact on the industry. We want to be the, the premier fleet management platform, providing as much value as we can to the industry. And that's where I'm, I'm really, you know, in my professional life, that's where I'm focused. Very nice. So before we go, who's the sweet spot that you guys serve? So mainly it's medium to large asset-based carriers or private fleets across every type of trucking that you can imagine. So would that even be last mile people? Last mile as well. We do parcel delivery. We do home deliveries. We do across the, the entire range. Yeah, and and I think you made the point when we were talking offline. Flatbed for like someone like CRST would be different than, you know, say less than truckload for like you know Old Dominion. You would need different different applications, right? Yeah, and and we have both of the you know CRST is a customer and, and a large number of LTL companies, and it's the same platform, but we have different flavors of applications for their drivers and it's completely customizable and configurable for any independent unique type of driver experience without writing code but you can have a customized tailored experience and that's that's how we're able to serve that range from final mile up to truckload expedited dedicated flatbed specialized type of trucking very nice very nice Avi, I really appreciate you taking the time. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your, to Maven, what's Maven Machines, I take that back, and any other links you give me for your company, I'll put those in the show notes. I'll also put a link to your LinkedIn profile so people can connect with you there. And any upcoming events that you want to talk about, webinars or conferences that you guys are attending? Just tomorrow, I'm flying to Vegas for the Truckload Carriers Association. We're going to be exhibiting with a great booth there in the next few days. This won't publish by then. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. But actually, at the end of uh, October, there's the uh, American Trucking Association uh, MC Management Conference and Expo. And we will be exhibiting uh, there. Where's that at? That's in Nashville. Very nice. Very nice. So I'll put all those links into uh, the show notes. And I do really appreciate you taking the time. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. Yeah, Joe, it's really nice to meet you. I appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, thank you. And thank all of you. I appreciate your support. Until next time, Onward Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.